This is Season 3 of Grain IQ. I'm your host, Chad Moyer. Grain marketing is a critical piece in keeping your operation profitable. In Seasons 1 and 2 of Grain IQ, we covered the basics of grain marketing and how to put those concepts into action. If you haven't listened to those first two seasons, we invite you to start there. On today's program, we're going to get some historical perspective from an individual who has been active in grain trading in Chicago. Mark Gold joins us here today. Mark Gold with Top Third Ag Marketing in, in Chicago. Thanks for joining us here today. Uh, I think it's a safe statement to say you were not there when the Chicago Board of Trade was built, but you might have been around for the first renovation, right? Uh, we were there. We've been there a long time. I uh, started in 1973. So I've been involved with the markets for over 50 years, so I've seen quite a bit. I didn't see the building being built in 1923, but I didn't miss it by all that much, you know. Yeah. But uh, it's been an amazing transition of what's happened in the markets over the last 50 years that I've been involved with it. Yeah, and we're going to spend some time and talk about that and try and get a, a little bit of historical perspective into grain trading, what it has meant to the grain trade, and, and how producers can use that today. But take me back to the mid-70s. Uh, how did you get an interest in, in grain trading? Tell me how you became exposed to the, the Chicago Board of Trade and the Mercantile Exchange. Well, I'm a city kid born and raised in Chicago. Uh, went off to Tulane University to become a doctor. That lasted about five minutes, literally. I uh, came back to Chicago, and that spring I met a cousin who owned a clearing firm at the Mercantile Exchange. And he said, what are you doing this summer? I said, nothing. And he said, well, why don't you come be a runner for me? So I walked down to the floor. I saw these guys yelling and screaming at each other. I knew this guy was very successful. I said, you know, this is right up my alley. I could see me doing this. And I went back to school, uh, to Loyola. I was going to school at night working on the floor during the day. And back in the early 70s, uh, the only thing we were really trading were cattle, hogs and bellies and wheat, corn and soybeans. So I figured if a city kid was going to make commodity trading his life, he ought to know a little bit about raising corn, wheat and beans and cattle and hogs. So I went back to the University of Illinois, got a degree in agricultural economics. And uh, when I got out, I was fortunate enough to be able to borrow enough money to buy a seat at the Board of Trade. and. At the time, I was one of the youngest members. I was 22 years old, and uh, off I went to try to make a fortune. Yeah. So in that uh, in 1973, who were the players? Who were the the people who were actively uh, involved in the physical trading on the Chicago Board of Trade? Well, certainly back then there was Cargill, ADM, Bungie, all the big names that we still know today. Uh, there were also at the time Continental Grain was a big factor back then. Uh, Heinholt Commodities. Heinholt was known as virtually having a hog market, cash hog market, in virtually every agricultural county from Ohio to Iowa into Minnesota. And they had the best information on the cattle and hog markets. But as far as the grain markets go, we've seen a lot of the names come and go. But, you know, Cargill, ADM, Bungie, are all been there and still around. Yep. Uh, how about the, uh, you know, if, if you had different job titles, what were the different job titles for the people who were active in trading back then? Well, you know, you started off with the runner who were the lowest level guy, and then you had the phone clerks who would take the orders that the different clients would call in from all over the world. Then you had the floor manager, and then you had the traders in the pits. And there were two types of traders. 
They're what we call a local trader. That was somebody who just traded for their own account. Make money, lose money, it was all their dough, make or lose. And that was the majority, when you see pictures of the trading floor, a majority of those people were locals. But there were also people working for uh, Continental Grain, uh, for Cargill, for ADM, for the different Merrill Lynch, Payne Weber at the time, and those were brokers filling orders on the floor. And a broker would be paid anywhere from a dollar and a half to two dollars a contract to fill an order. So if, <clears throat> back then, if you had an order to fill a million bushels of grain, that was 200 contracts, you made $250, $300 filling that order. But you also had the risk, if you made a mistake, you wore that mistake, that was your money. Mm-hmm. So you always wanted to be very careful filling an order because you were responsible for it being done right. Yep. You said something before that you bought a seat on the Chicago Board of Trade. Yeah. What, what does that mean? What does owning or, or buying a seat mean? What does that get you? Well, back then in the 70s through the early 80s, in order to be a member on the floor in the pit, you had to own a seat. It changed later where you could lease a seat from a current owner who wasn't trading. They could lease that seat. But back then, you had to buy the seat. Uh, that allowed you to be in the pit, to trade, lower commissions. You were part of the market in times you were making a market, and it allowed you to be there and be part of it. So that was the ultimate goal of anybody that started as a runner. They wanted to get to be a broker. Yeah. Now, you have an interesting story. You were telling me uh, you had a, because you, you did your initial work over on the mercantile exchange, yeah. which was the, the livestock side, right. but you bought a seat over in the grains. What, yeah. <laughs> what led you from one to the other? Yeah, the, the cousin that brought me into the business, uh, he was at the, at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. So I was kind of raised in the business on the Merc floor, knew everybody, and there was a lot of activity and the markets had really started to take off in the mid and late 70s. And at the time I had a few months to kill before I could get my seat. So there was an ad in the paper for a runner for Pillsbury. I well, I'll go run for Pillsbury for six weeks. I said, look, I can only be here six weeks. It was a busy summer market. They said, we'll take you. I said, you don't have to train me. Just tell me who your brokers are and I'll, I'll figure it out. So I worked for Pillsbury on the floor of the Board of Trade. And when I got done, I had to make a decision. Did I buy, want to buy the seat at the Board of Trade or the Merck? The Merck seat at the time was $165,000. The Board Trade seat was $125,000. And for me, I was borrowing all the money. That difference between $125,000 and $165,000 was forty grand less that I had to pay interest on and to pay mm-hmm. back. And I liked the people at the Board of Trade. Uh, I thought it was a little bit different vibe than the Merck. Mm-hmm. The Merck was a little bit more, you know, hustle and bustle, where the Board of Trade, they were get, getting the job done mm-hmm. and working with the grain markets, and I really enjoyed that. Yep. All right. Something I think farmers talk a lot about is these government reports that we get from USDA. You know, yeah. we get a monthly WASD, we get production reports throughout mm-hmm. the year. Yeah. Um, back when you started, how... How did you trade those? And, and I'm thinking, how did you get the information? You know, uh, when those reports came out, and, and then how did you react to them in the pits? You know, it's funny. Back then, we had tel- ticker tapes, and the reports came out at two o'clock after the market closed, and all the members would stand around the ticker tape machine, and there'd be one guy. His name was Jordy Hollander. Uh, his father had a company at the Board of Trade, uh, Hollander Grain, basically. 
And for some reason, Jordy got to be the official town crier, if you will, and he would yell it out as it came across the ticker tape. And uh, that's how we got the information. And then you had time, obviously, overnight to digest it. There was no nighttime markets back then. Mm -hmm. So you had plenty of time to look at the report, make the decision. The market would open back then at 9.30 in the morning. Yep. Uh, we actually got to sleep a little bit later back then. Um, so it was different. But then as you know, people got cell phones, the information was on the phones, and then the reports came out at 11 o'clock. Yeah. And we would have tele-tickers in the pit to see what was going on. So it evolved over time as the technology changed. That's what happened then. The reports would come out at 11 o'clock. And now, one of the things that's happened is, you know, the high-frequency traders and the funds, all this electronic, it happens in a microsecond. As soon as that report is released at 11 o'clock, at 11 o'clock in one second, you see these blips in the marketplace. Well, I can't put it in order that fast. And so consequently, traders, whether you're sitting out here in Grand Island or in Chicago or wherever you are, you're not trading the report. You're trading the reaction to the report, which I don't think is right. And there's been some talk about maybe releasing the report at 8 in the morning and then letting the market reopen at 8.30, which I think would be a fairer deal. Give everybody that doesn't have these high-speed computers a chance. But, you know, one of the big things that's changed is the exchange went from a private company, pub privately held company, to a publicly traded company. And now the CME bought the Merck, so it's all under the CME group. And it's a for-profit exchange and they have to be certainly aware of their shareholder and shareholder equity yep. so they want to promote volume yep and you get the volume from the high frequency traders and, and that's how the chicago mercantile exchange makes money is every time so there's, there's a, a trade, trade right so if the more trades the more uh, that is good for their business absolutely yep, yep and that's been their business model really for the last 20 years get as much volume as you can and the best way to do that is through the computer now, I'm an old school guy, you know. Uh, I still call the refrigerator the icebox, and my uh -huh. wife laughs at me. And but I prefer the old way. Yeah. Uh, but you know, my time has come and gone in the 50 years. These young kids, these 25-year-old kids, you know, they know about cybersecurity. They know mm -hmm. about high-frequency trading and algorithms and all the things to make up the market today that didn't make up the market 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah, and may, and you've mentioned it, maybe you can expand on that. What was it like to you, for you to watch the way grain is traded change, yeah. especially over the last, what, 10, 15 20, years probably? Yeah. Uh, what was it like to watch that? I didn't like it, mm -hmm. again, because I was old school, but it was actually okay for the clients, for the farmers, where, you know, at times they'd have to wait till the end of the day to get the rotor out of the pit. You know, to be on the floor waiting for some runner to pick it up. Now, when they call the broker, they get that fill instantaneously. Bunches it in to the computer, gets the fill, bang, you're done. Mm -hmm. So for the clients, it wasn't a bad deal. Uh, for professional traders like myself, I had to try to outwit the computers. I was never very good at that. Yeah. The computers were a lot smarter than I am. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is, even with the computers, the market is still a place of price discovery. Supply and demand still rule the markets. And that price that they see, 
13.50 for soybeans. That's everything the world knows about soybeans at that split second, and that hasn't changed. And that price is tradable within a quarter of a cent generally, and that's the market. And it works probably better for the farmer than it did back in the days of the old orders. Yep, sure. We've talked a lot about the Chicago Board of Trade and the Mercantile, which is now, like you said, the CME group. Yeah. But there are other exchanges, even here in the United States yes. and, and around the world. Yeah. Are they all connected? I, I know yeah. they're different entities, but uh, yeah. do they work together? Do they kind of follow the same systems? You know, they've tried to, over the years, try to steal each other's contracts. And some have been, very rarely are they successful. Uh, they try to hook everything together, and in one system or another, you know, if I wanted to trade crude oil in New York, I can do that on the computer. I don't like to trade those kind of commodities, so I don't get too involved. But you, from your computer at home, and virtually every farmer has a computer now, if they want to trade canola, if they want to trade crude oil, if they want to trade metals, whatever it is, they can do it right on their system and the back offices are pretty much meshed where they get everything cleared. Mm -hmm. So it's... In a roundabout way, they kind of are, huh? They're, they're still connected. They still have their own profit centers. And, you know, mm -hmm. back in the day, you know, it used to be the COMEX and, you know, the, um, uh, the New York Mercantile Exchange and some traded coffee, cocoa, OJ, uh, and cotton, and then the metals were traded at COMEX. It's all pretty much, everybody's been bought and it's been consolidated dramatically yeah. over the last 50 years. Yeah. Um, this is a little pop culture maybe, but I'll ask you anyway, because yeah. there have been a few movies that yes. have have a storyline based on what happens in, in these places. Yeah. Um, do you, has, has Hollywood uh, taken a uh, an accurate approach to what happens in Chicago and, and things like that? Or are there, is there some poetic license? Uh, has Hollywood ever <laughs> done it right? Uh, you know, there are movies like Trading Places with Eddie Murphy. And, you know, being in the pits, um, you know, they captured that feel a little bit. Did the uh, Duke brothers, you know, squeeze the OJ that year? No, obviously not. Um, there was another movie called Limit Up about uh, trading in Chicago. And it was a fantasy the devil was involved in this thing, and he was trying to make sure there was enough food for the world, and the, the, the angel was trying to defeat the, uh, the devil. The closest one I ever saw was a movie called um, Rogue Trader, R-O-G-U-E, uh -huh. Rogue Trader. It's the true story of this kid in Singapore who lost so much money. He was, he was a trader for Barings Bank, the oldest, most venerable bank in England, and he took Barings Bank down, and Barings Bank was sold for a dollar back in the late 80s, early 90s. And it's a true story, and the story is pretty much what it was. But I can tell you, when this guy was getting killed in the market, and you could see him wanting to throw up, and he'd be watching this thing and watching the boards and the prices going down and you could see he just wanted to toss his cookies. He captured that feeling as well as anybody <laughs> because I knew that exact feeling at times. Uh -huh. Oh God. And, yeah. it was, and it wasn't in, in ag commodities I don't think but there was a movie with Kevin Spacey and I think it had to do with the, the housing 
uh, issue in 2008. Uh, did you well, see that? Well, there was the big, the big short. I don't think it was Kevin, maybe been Kevin Spacey, but the big short was a true story about a guy who thought the mortgage, mortgage, mortgage market was all messed up. Mm-hmm. And he was selling all these mortgage back and it started to go against him. And he said, I don't care, I'm right. They kept selling more and more. People were laughing at him, said, you're gonna get killed. The guy wound up making billions, literally billions of dollars. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's a true story. The, the thing in, with Bering Bank and Singapore is a true story. But the feel that guy captured of what a trader felt like when it was going against you. Yeah. You could feel the pain. In, in that, that time, in that moment, so right there. Was like nothing I'd ever seen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I highly recommend the movie to show the, you know, people always thought that if you remember the Board of Trade or the Merck, you know, you're a rich guy and you're stolen money from the farmers. That didn't happen. Yeah. What happened where there were good traders and bad traders, you know. Okay, I, th- yeah. I think we've done our pulp culture part. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I, I think the last question I would have for you, Mark, is considering the, the institutional knowledge that you have about how the Chicago Board of Trade operates, and again, its purpose, like you said, price discovery and things like that, what are the elements for a farmer in the field, what are the elements of a successful grain marketing plan? You know what I mean? What, what do they have to do to be successful? First thing, they have to have a plan. If you ask a room full of farmers, how many of you have a marketing plan for your grain or livestock? Maybe you'll get one or two hands out of a hundred. You have to have a marketing plan. Uh, did Tom Osborne ever go into a football game without a plan? And what did he expect his tr- players to do with it? execute that plan. So not only do you have to have a plan, you have to execute the plan. And you have to understand, one of the things I've learned in my 50 years is yes, the Board of Trade and the Merck are there for price discovery and for dissemination of information and all the things that we're taught in school. But in my opinion, one of the real reasons any market is there is to force out the inefficient producer. And how do you force out the inefficient producer? you get the price of that commodity under the cost of production. And if you look at grain markets over the last 50 years, every spike in the market, no matter how high, whether it was $5 corn or $7.50 corn or $17 beans, you went back under the cost of production within two years. Mm -hmm. Because if you didn't force out the inefficient producers, what would stop a city idiot like me from saying, I'm going to pay 15000 an acre for land. Look how easy this is. Yeah. And you'd be inundated with people that didn't know what the heck they were doing. So it's the market's way of saying the guys that market, the guys that raise good crops can survive, but you've got to have a marketing plan. Yeah. And, and so just kind of going back to what you said, we may hate it on the surface. Yes. We, may talk, we may talk bad about right. it, but let's appreciate its purpose and what it does for us yeah. in agriculture, right? Yeah. And my personal opinion is everybody knows, knows me, knows I'm an options guy. I don't want them trading futures because with futures, you get emotional. You generally get blown out at the top and all those bums in Chicago got us again. With an option, you buy an option, whatever you spend for the option, it's like an insurance policy. If the market goes down, you're protected. If the market goes up, you'll lose the premium you paid, but you'll sell your grain at higher prices. Yep, based on what you're protecting, pretty cheap insurance, right? Pretty cheap insurance. And it's got an, if eight out of 10 years, the markets don't do too well, you've got an eight out of 10 chance of this policy paying off. 
How many chances do you have of your life insurance paying off? About once in 80 years, hopefully, or 90 years. <laughs> we hope that's the we case anyway, that's right? The case. That's yeah. right. Mark, it's been so fun to sit down with you. Thank you for your time and Thanks sharing some me. of that knowledge, okay? It's been a pleasure. You bet. Thank you very much. Thank you. Again, that's Mark Gold. He's with Top Third Ag Marketing in Chicago. And we, again, thanks to Mark for joining us on this episode of Grain IQ. I'm Chad Moyer. Grain IQ is a production of the Nebraska Rural Radio Association with support from the Nebraska Soybean Board. It is brought to you in part by Nebraska Soybean Farmers and their checkoff. You can listen to Grain IQ on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or online at ruralradionetwork.com.